The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Well, it's a fact of life that we can't be deeply involved in everything, right? I mean, in some things, many things, actually probably most things, we can really only just kind of skim the surface of what there is to know, what there is to experience, what there is to do, what there is to understand. But if we really talk about diving deep, being the expert in something, giving something or someone our absolute best, we can really only do that in a few places, with a few things, with a few relationships, which leaves most things, if we'll admit it, to a place where we're kind of have a shallow level of involvement with them. And that shallow word has kind of a bad connotation to it, but really we're kind of okay with it. I mean, think about it. At least for me, I can tell you these examples. I mean, I, I drive to work in a car every day that I have kind of a shallow understanding of how it works, but I entrust my life to it every day. I really don't have a deep understanding of the, the complex system of systems, of, of business and economics and manufacturing, distributing and agriculture that has to come together in order to build one grocery store that functions. But you know, that doesn't bother me when I go and I buy a couple gallons of milk and I go home. And even at work, that's the place where people would say, well, well, you know, that's not your job. You don't work at a grocery store. Maybe at work, right? But even at work, I find that, you know, most of us probably just know our little piece of that enterprise that we work for. But there's still just everything else. It's just, we know it just kind of at a shallow level, you know? I can think of at work, there are dozens and dozens of people that I work with on a regular basis. I don't even know their first and last name. So I've got my examples, I'm sure you've got your examples, but the fact of the matter is, as much as we wish we could, we can't. We can't go deep in many places in life. Now, I think sometimes we tell ourselves that we can. I mean, we're dreamers, right? We think, we think that just given enough time, given enough opportunity, you know, if we could just kind of get all the obstacles out of the way, if we could just make a clean path ahead of us, oh, then, then we'd have no limits, right? I, I can think this way. I can think that I could be the most valuable employee at my work, and I could be the, the father of the year. I could raise perfect children. I could probably record a platinum-selling album. You know, I could write a best-selling novel. I could have a relationship with God that is the most valuable thing in my life, that is this deep anchor, anchor in my life that I can hold on to at good times and in bad times. I could have the best lawn in my neighborhood, manicured to perfection. I could be a world-class athlete. I could get my doctorate degree. I could be a top-notch chef. I could do whatever I see on TV better than those people who are doing it on TV. I could have washboard abs, and I'll stop right there. <laughs> but I hope you see the point, right? This list of things that I may or may not be telling myself, this list of things that you have that you may or may not occasionally be talking to yourself about, it's not reality. Everything on my list, and trust me, the list is longer than I have just shared with you. Everything on that list, all of those things require deep involvement to get there. 
while some of those things are absolutely attainable, the reality for all of us is that we can't go deep everywhere. We have to choose. We have to decide which things and which relationships are absolutely the most important to us and invest deeply there, knowing that to do so comes at a cost. Because everywhere we choose to invest, to live deeply, means that we won't be going deep somewhere else. So if you've been keeping track, today is our 10th message in this series that we've been teaching from on the book of 1 Timothy. Now we call it a book, originally it was just a letter. It was a letter written from Paul, who was the founding pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus, to Timothy, who was the lead pastor currently leading that church. And when a pastor writes to another pastor, they tend to kind of talk about church stuff, right? They talk about uh, what the church should be like, how to address the church's problems, how to lead, how to choose leaders, what things the church needs to emphasize in its teaching. And that's pretty much what we see here as Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to make that big step, 10 weeks, into chapter 5 making the step into chapter 5, and this is one where if you've got your Bible with you, either, you know, hard copy Bible or your app that has the Bible on it, um, I'd really encourage you to actually go there. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5 because we're only going to read a few verses in this before we see that Paul starts to go deep. And I'll bet you that something like 9 out of 10 of us will decide at that moment, yeah, that's where we're going to stay shallow. So I'm going to not read to you the entire chapter. I'm not going to have the entire thing up on the screen today, but I am going to talk you through a lot of it. So if you had it open, that would be a pretty decent way to double check that I'm not just making this stuff up. So let's take a look together. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 and following. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, but, and this is the moment right here, this is the moment where a lot of us start to check out, because at this point, Paul goes into great detail about exactly how Timothy and the church in Ephesus should take care of widows. And he goes on for four paragraphs about just that, spelling out how to do so wisely and yet with compassion. He talks about which widows should be eligible to be supported by the church, which ones shouldn't. He actually gives an exact age at which those widows would become eligible. He talks about requirements for the widow's spiritual life. He talks about requirements for the widow's extended family and their responsibilities. He gives Timothy advice on how to counsel younger, wid younger widows, and he talks about the possibility of remarriage. And there may be a few of us here today that read these pa this passage of Scripture and find it absolutely fascinating. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, we may have that kind of impression of, that sounds like it was really useful to Timothy but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with it. I mean, so much of the New Testament, you open it up, you read it, and it just cuts you to the heart. It just gets right to you. 
You know, we read about this impossibly great God that we serve, and we try to wrap our mind around who he is and what he's done. The Bible will tell us about conditions of the heart, and it will challenge us. It will say, examine your own. This applies to you. The Bible will tell us about faith and actions and about how our faith needs to line up with our actions, and it will force us to ask us the hard questions of, is that the case in my life? And then there's this scripture, which reads like a chapter out of a church policy manual. I mean, it seems like it should be wedged in between, you know, the chapter on uh, when you should rent church facilities to third parties and the next chapter over here about how the church does weddings and funerals. I mean, who comes and is like, hey, can I read your church policy manual? Nobody has ever asked me that. So we can just very easily just kind of check out when we read this, you know? I mean, give me that chapter that cuts me to the heart. Give me the one that seems like it was written just about me. That's what I want to read on. This one, this one's probably not one where I'm going to choose to dive deep. I mean, like I said earlier, right? We can't go deep everywhere. So maybe this is one of those places where you just kind of go, well, I'll just get the basic message and I'll move on. And I can tell you, I've, I've read this chapter dozens and dozens and dozens of times just that way. But there's just one question I think we need to answer before we can really feel like we have done this chapter any justice. And that's this. Why? Why did Paul go deep on this topic of caring for widows? I mean... Paul only wrote six chapters in this letter. Now, granted, when he wrote them, he didn't write chapters. We added those later. But there's only six chapters in this letter. He can't go deep on every topic in the church, right? We talked about that. He can only pick so many topics to write about, and of those topics, he can really only pick, like, a couple to spend four paragraphs on. But he picks this one, caring for widows. Why? And I think we can assume one obvious reason. I mean, this is there because it needs to be there. The church in Ephesus needed to know this. Timothy needed this information. Okay, that's not rocket science. I mean, Paul was experienced in setting up churches. He was experienced with dealing with the challenges that arose in them, and he also kept informed about the current problems, the current successes of the church. And so when he wrote to the churches, these kinds of topics naturally made it into his letters. But is that it? Is that it? He's just being helpful, and that just happens to take up a lot of space in his letter? I think there's something more, though. Paul's helpful in a lot of his letters, and he gives a lot of instructions to churches that they really need to just kind of help them through a problem or something, but he does it a lot. Oftentimes, he does it in one or two verses, just a little odd little sentence here of like, oh, by the way, take care of this, and that's all he says. But here, he doesn't go one or two verses. He goes 14 verses. It's the majority of the chapter. I think it's because Paul believes that here, we are on a topic that's worth going deep. This chapter isn't just about widows. It's not just about how to talk to people who need correction, as we saw addressed in the first verse of the chapter. It's about something bigger. It's about God's people acting like family. And that, to Paul, is a big deal. And that in God's word is a huge deal. But is it to us? Is it to us? We're going to jump around in the scriptures a bit today. Um, 
So we're not just going to stay here in 1 Timothy, but I do want to look at chapter 5 just a little bit more to set the scene. See, from the very first few verses, Paul is telling Timothy, look, you're in charge. And when you're in charge, you kind of have some responsibilities. You've got to keep people in line when they step out of line. It's part of your job. And if you remember the previous four chapters, he's got good reason for saying this. The church at Ephesus has some challenges. They're in a spiritual battle. They are faced with false teaching all around them in the culture and false teachers that have come into the church itself, into their own number. But it's Timothy's job as a leader to both show them how to live properly through his example, as we talked about last week, and also to actually confront and correct people when they are in error. But it's really interesting what happens here because Paul shifts to this topic. He's like, okay, I've got to tell you, you have a responsibility to correct people. And so he talks to, this, talks to him on this subject, and he says, Timothy, when you rebuke people, you do it differently. You've probably seen plenty of times that people use their power and their, their authority to just let people have it. You've probably seen plenty of times that people who are right just humiliate people who are wrong. You've probably seen people who are in power just crush people who are not in authority. And Paul starts with saying, not you. Not you. You will do things differently. You will treat people like family. Let's look at that passage one more time. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but here's how you do it. Exhort him as if he were your father. And that word is exhort, not extort, just in case anybody is not really listening. Exhort, appeal to him, appeal to his better nation, call him to what he knows is right. Exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And as Paul is addressing this important, important topic about leadership, I mean, this subject about being responsible for correcting people and keeping the church in line, it's like something bigger and even more important just kind of takes over. You need to treat others like in your church like family. Yeah, it's got to be that way. You have to. Older men like fathers and, and younger men like brothers. Older women like mothers. Younger women like sisters. Family whom you would love with all purity and provide for and care for and require things of like members of your own household. And it's almost like Paul leaves behind the thought he started with because he wants to stay on this new one. I mean, we get just one sentence about correcting people, and then for almost the rest of the chapter, we're on a new message. Your family, you have got to care for one another. And as a family, you need to plan for how you're going to care for those members in need. So let me tell you about widows. They're your family too. But like any family members, they have responsibilities. And so he dives in for four paragraphs on how widows fit into the family of God. They have responsibilities to the family. The family has responsibilities to them. And really from there, Paul doesn't stop after he explains that for four paragraphs. The end of the chapter switches to the topic of church leaders, but he's still talking about family. They are the elders of the family, he calls them. And Paul talks about similar topics here, what obligations the family has to them, to honor them and to pay them well and to be careful in choosing them. And yet he also talks about how even the elders are accountable 
to the family, to the rest of the church, for their life, for their conduct. And by the end of the chapter, if you haven't checked out, you get a sense that Paul really doesn't want us to miss this. How we relate to one another matters. Are you seeing that? But I don't think saying it that way gives it the gravity that it really holds for him. How about this? How we relate to one another matters a lot. Mm. That's barely better. So how about this? Let's, let's go for one more try. How we relate to one another in the family of God is one of the very few areas of life where it is worth it to go deep, to invest big, to sacrifice other areas of life so that this one will be all that it should be. So much for short and sweet. Sorry. <laughs> but I think that gets a lot closer to capturing what Paul is trying to get across here. For Paul, God's family was serious business. And if you don't believe me, just go, you know, Paul, I know it's just one little thing about the church, uh, but we do need to know how we're supposed to care for widows, and he will give you an earful. Of course, this isn't just a Paul thing. It's a God's word thing. The Bible very specifically, very intentionally teaches us that when we give our lives to God, we become part of a new family. Our culture likes to use this phrase, we are all God's children. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches differently. When we give our lives to God, it is then and only then that God grants us the right to become his children. Jesus himself tells us about this in Mark chapter 3, verses 32 to 35. It says, a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Likewise, the Gospel of John spells out this reality for us. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If you have placed your trust in Jesus, if you have begun living for him, you have joined a new family. You have become a child of God. And that's great news. It's incredible news. It's wonderful news. But sometimes... I think we miss a big part of it. See, when we're adopted into the family of God, rightfully so, the biggest thing on our mind is the word that comes after family of. Family of God, right? I mean, the biggest change of our lives is that God has come into it. The Father God has become our Father. The Son of God, the Savior of the world, has somehow become our brother. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, comes to live inside us, to begin to work in us, to communicate us in just wondrous and indescribable ways. And really, i got to tell you, even if you've been in the family of God your entire life, God himself is still and will always be the most wonderful and most important part of it. Always. He is worth going deep with more than anyone or anything ever will be or could be. But I think what we easily overlook is the rest of our family. Yes, we've gained God in our lives. And 
We've also gained a whole bunch of new family members and this little old thing called the church. Everyone else who has also been adopted into God's family, they become our brothers and sisters. There are perhaps over 2 billion of them on the planet right now. And even in the Puget Sound region where, you know, almost nobody here wants to check that box and say they believe in any sort of God whatsoever, there are still pockets of God's family all over this place, meeting in churches, meeting in homes to honor God, to worship God, to explore faith, and to basically be family with one another. So everyone who becomes part of God's family also becomes part of this family of believers, also known as the church or known as the body of Christ. And I think we easily miss that that is a big deal. I mean, you've probably heard it before, right? Oh, we're all family. We're family. We share something very special and common. We should, we should be there for one another, right? I mean, like, it just sounds like this, this nice thing, this good thing, this optional thing, <laughs> right? Like, if you don't feel like having a whole bunch of extra family members today, then just don't. <laughs> just don't. I mean, who's going to come up to your house and tell you you have to? You know, there are no police that are going to drag you away for abandoning your family if it's the church family, right? And in today's day and age, it's really easy to meet Christians who live, you know, right here in America where there are millions of Christians, and they have absolutely no real commitments or real connection to the rest of God's people. And that's easy to do. I mean, you can watch church services online. You can, even, uh, you can even worship with them online as they, you know, they broadcast their worship services over the internet. You can listen to Christian radio and sing along with them. You can, you can pray and read your Bible anywhere on this earth. You don't need to be here in church to do that, right? You can have this relationship with God that's going on outside these walls without these people. The two greatest commandments of loving God first and foremost and loving your neighbor as yourself, you can even find ways where you can say, well, I can obey those without necessarily, you know, buying into this whole concept of the church. that a lot of people do, or at least a lot of people try to. Whether or not they succeed in doing that is certainly up for debate. And church perhaps becomes a nice-to-have. You know, a when it can work, that's great, uh, but not really a priority. But here's the problem with that. I don't know how that fits with God's Word. I can't find it in God's word that way. In fact, I believe God's word will passionately call us in the opposite direction. If you ever want to get a glimpse at what is close to God's heart, really special to God's heart, that like this is, this is something that's really important to him. There are probably several great places to go to in the Bible, but one that I keep coming back to is John chapters 13 through 17. To me, those five chapters show Jesus giving some of the most personal and intentional teaching that you will see in all the scriptures. These chapters tell tell of what he taught, what he showed his disciples on the night when he knew it was his last night with them, the night he was going to be betrayed, the night before he would die for them. And so you know that 
Jesus has chosen every topic he's going to discuss, every action he will take very carefully. He's planned the whole evening. He knows how it's going to go. Nothing here is going to be extra. Nothing here is going to be secondary importance. These are the things his disciples need to know. It's in these five chapters that we see Jesus get down on his knees and wash his disciples' feet, the Son of God being the servant of those who believe. These five chapters, we see Jesus teaching his disciples about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He tells them something mind-blowing. He says that I am going away for you when it is better that I go because I will give you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will live in you. That's a crazy, mind-blowing thought. But Jesus teaches it to his disciples here. It's in here that Jesus teaches us about our core responsibility of remaining in him. He says it like 11 times to remain in me. Remain in me like a branch needs to remain in the vine, otherwise it dies. That's how you need to remain in me. It's here that he teaches that. It's here that he teaches them about his death. He says it's coming, and I'm going to tell you what it means so that when it happens, you'll have some hope of understanding why this is important. It's in here that we have the longest prayer of Jesus in the scripture that we have recorded. We know he prayed all night sometimes. We don't have the transcripts, but we have a chapter here that contains nothing but the words of Jesus' prayer to his father, the last prayer we have recorded of him before he's arrested. It's a pretty important place in the Bible, a pretty important place where we see the heart of God coming out And yet in the midst of all of those things, there's something else in there. There is a new commandment, and he gives it at least three times. And I say at least three, depends on how you want to count it, could be five. But he gives it multiple times, a new commandment in the midst of the last day that he would have with his disciples. So Jesus had to have been saving up for this one. He'd been saving it up for this night. I mean, in only a few hours, the disciples would be on their own. Yes, Jesus would rise from the grave, but he would return to his father. And so he knew he needed to prepare them with one final instruction. And so Jesus tells them this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The command to love was not new. Jesus had taught his disciples to love God. Jesus had taught his disciples to love their neighbors, no matter how unlikely their neighbors may be. But here, Jesus tells them that they have an obligation to each other. And you want to talk about going deep. What Jesus tells them right here is he says, you need to love them and you need to be all in on this, guys. Just in case any of the disciples didn't realize how important this was, I mean, you know, maybe they missed, hey, this is a brand new commandment on the last night we have with our Savior. <laughs> in case they missed that, in case they missed the fact that he had partaken in a sacred meal with them, and then afterwards, the events of the evening were just kind of falling apart, like Judas has left them. He'd been with them for years, and he's just like up and left them to go, dis- to go betray uh, Jesus to his captors. Um, at this point, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, guys, my time's done. My time's done. I'm running out of time. In case the disciples missed that this is a pretty significant evening, Jesus has in this command some words that really help them go, 
This isn't just a casual conversation we're having here, guys. This isn't just me saying, make sure you guys love each other, be nice to each other. No. He starts out by saying, here's how. You've got to love each other as I have loved you. That's not casual. It's not if this happens to work out. This is the highest way any person could ever love another person. Do you realize that? But Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other in the highest way that any person could possibly love any other person. You can read four books at the front of the New Testament that will show what that kind of love looks like. You'll see what Jesus did, how he loved his disciples. Jesus chose them. He journeyed with them. He prayed with them and over them. He taught them. He encouraged them. He corrected them. He included them. He mentored them. He blessed them. He served them. He sacrificed for them. And he gives them this command, do it like I did it. Two chapters later, he gives the command again. And he gives it again. And in between those two times when he gives it again, he reminds them. He says, by the way, there isn't a greater love than giving your life for someone. And the very next day, that's what Jesus did. He gave his life for his friends. And his command is love one another as I have. So I hope we can catch the significance. If that's not enough to make us pay attention, then Jesus also adds another statement in there when he gives this command. He says, by the way, guys, by this, by obeying this command, this is how everyone is going to know that you're my disciples. Following this command right here, this will be your living, breathing proof that you're the real deal, that you're in God's family. You might do great in so many other areas of your faith, but Jesus said there's something unique about this one. Doing this one thing will stand out to show the world that you belong to God. So if you've given your life to Christ, you've got a, a new family, but I want to let you know it's a real thing. It's not just this cute little name that we put on church people to make it seem like a happy, friendly place to be. No, this is real. And in real families, the relationships matter. The way you love people matters. In real families, there are expectations on every family member to care for one another, to help the family succeed, to do your part in the family. And God's word tells us that our heavenly father is passionate and serious about his family and especially how we invest in one another. Jesus started making that clear with this new command, this new command to love one another. He gave it three to five times on his last night with his disciples. But from that point on, the rest of God's word just continues to build on that. It doesn't disappear for the rest of the New Testament. It never drops the subject. And we see over and over again commands and encouragements about the responsibilities we have to one another. And there are so many examples. I can't even take us through them all this morning, but here's a sample. The New Testament tells us to love one another, to belong to one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another above yourselves, to serve one another, to be patient with one another, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to submit to one another, to forgive one another, to teach and admonish one another, to encourage one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for each other, offer hospitality to one another. 
And there are many more. And many of these that we have just covered on this list appear multiple times, especially the commands to love one another. And the picture the New Testament gives us is not just love one another, get that straight. No, it's this picture of however well you love one another, keep working on it. Keep working with God and keep working with one another to make your love increase and overflow. This is the church that God has envisioned. This is the family that he is passionate about and the responsibility that he has called his family into. Don't you want to be part of that family? Don't you want to be that kind of family? Then it's time to invest. It's time to invest in your family. It's time to make the decision that out of all those areas in life that are clamoring for your attention, this one's going to win, while some others are going to have to lose. It's time to go deeper than you have before to be the family member that God has called you to be, because I guarantee you, it will not happen on accident. Your flesh doesn't want to do this. Your naturally sinful self, my naturally sinful self, doesn't want to become this kind of person. It wants to just sit back and receive. I mean, you look at that list and you're like, give that to me. I want to be honored. I want to be served. I want to be prayed for. I want to be encouraged. Absolutely, all day, every day. I will take as much of it as you want to give to me. But give it to others? Well, as soon as the thought is suggested, I know my brain just kicks into rationalization mode. I have that mode. You guys have that mode? It kicks into rationalization mode. Well, I don't have time. I, I, I already did that something for that other person. Uh, I already pray enough for my own family. I can't, you know, dedicate that to this. I don't even know that person. I need some more time for me too. I will do it next time. You know, I'm not really feeling that God is specifically talking to me about this really particular person and thing right now and, and on and on and on. And there is no end to that. There is no limit to how selfish our sinful nature will try to convince us to be. I guarantee you, it never gets tired of being selfish. It really doesn't. Becoming the family members that God has called us, know, know that God has commanded us to be, though, that will never happen on accident. It will only happen when we choose to obey, when we choose to acknowledge that God has called us into relationship with each other, when we choose to invest in God's family. In just the last few minutes we have this morning, let me give you some ideas about what that might look like, what investing in the family of believers might look like. And it will not be an exhaustive list I think if God is speaking to you now, if, you, if your heart is open to him and he's actually making that good connection with you right now, then the ways that you respond to him could show up in hundreds of wonderful different ways. But for the sake of time, let me just discuss three, okay? <laughs> three ways that we can invest in the family of believers. First of all, commit to showing up. Commit to being there, physically present with your family dependably. 
Make it a pre-decided priority. You'll be here when we gather for worship, when we gather for prayer nights. Make it a pre-decided priority that when you sign up for a community group, you're going to be there for every week, every single week. Now, don't get me wrong. Just showing up, that doesn't make you, you know, into some holy person automatically. There's no magic to it, right? God isn't going to give you a better mansion in heaven based on the number of church services or community group meetings you've attended. But... And I've thought about this quite a bit. I still don't know how we could possibly be the family that God has called us to be unless we commit to gathering together regularly. How could you honor someone above yourself? How could we encourage one another? How could we bear one another's burdens? How could we possibly say that we are loving people like Jesus loved his disciples unless we show up? Jesus taught his disciples that where two or more of them were gathered together, that he would show up in their midst. And later in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, we get this explicit instruction. It says this, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Showing up by itself doesn't make you family, but it makes investing in your family possible. Second, commit to sharing your journey. And you'll notice that all three of these are going to start with this word, commit. See, we don't change very deeply in a moment-to-moment kind of decision. Our deepest, most significant changes occur when we decide how we will always decide to do something. And that's what I mean here by commitments, deciding that we will always decide to share our journey with our fellow believers, deciding that we will know and be known. We will have real relationships with people in God's household, that this won't be an optional thing anymore. I won't make my life too busy to walk in my faith journey with other believers while I get to know their journeys as well. Because if you want to, you can still be a loner in a crowd, right? You can still come to church every single week and never get to know another person. Sure, because people are friendly, you might feel like you do. (laughs) You might shake some people's hands every week. You might learn some names. You might exchange a lot of small talk. But unless you go deeper than that, how will you really be able to pray for one another? How will you be able to teach and correct one another? When would you ever even have a need to forgive or to submit to one another? Who could possibly say that you belong to one another? These things will only be real when we move past the surface and begin to share our journeys with one another. That's why community groups are so important. I mean, I love Sundays here at CRC. They are great. I wish they came more often than once a week. But Sundays don't really provide us with the opportunity to know other people deeply and to care for them individually. I mean, we need Sundays. Sundays are great. We need to worship God together. We need to pray together. We need to come together and learn together. But we need more than that to be the family that God has called us to be. We need to commit to sharing our journeys with one another. And the final way to invest in the family of believers is commit to using your gifts. 
Commit to using the gifts that God has given you. Now, there's so much to say about this one. We could do a series. We're not going to today. We don't have that kind of time, so let me just say this. God has an assignment for every family member that goes beyond even showing up and building relationships. We've got work to do. And God has gifted each of his children uniquely so that when we come together, each of us has a part to play to benefit the others. Some of us are supposed to teach and to lead worship from the front, but not all of us. Some of us are supposed to organize and administrate, but not all of us. Some of us are uniquely gifted to encourage or to show mercy or to prophesy or to apply some skills that we have gained elsewhere to the benefit of God's family, but not everyone. But no member of the family is giftless. That's not even a word. No member of the family is assigned the role, bystander number three. The Bible says that to each one, God has given gifts from the Holy Spirit for the common good. Every one of us, to each one, we've got a gift that is to benefit the family. Oh, what a family that would be if each one would make the choice. This is one of the few areas in my life where I will dive deep even though it'll cost me, because it will cost us, it will. We can't commit to showing up and make sports the most important thing in our life. We can't. We can't commit to sharing our journeys and remain safely closed off in our own little bubble where our vulnerabilities are protected. We can't commit to using our gifts without sacrificing. It takes time and effort to use our gifts for others. Time and effort that we could have been spending on something that our sinful nature wanted to do for ourselves. But if we'll go forward, if we'll go forward anyway, if we'll pay these costs gladly, we'll discover something so much greater than anything the world has to offer. We will become the family that God has designed and intended and that is a family that is filled with God's presence, that is filled with God's power. That is a family that is a joy to be a part of, and it is a benefit to the rest of the world. And that is a family that will show the world that God is alive and well and inviting everyone in so that they might become a part of the family that they were always meant to join. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know today that I have done justice to showing the passion that you have for your family. Your word shows us over and over again how much you love us. We can't find the limits of it, but then it challenges us with the impossible, God, that we might match that and how we love one another, that we would love one another like you have loved us.
We're often unfit for the task, God. But only if we rely on our own strength. If we look at ourselves and our weakness, God, we will find we don't have what it takes. But you have told us that when we are weak, you are strong. And so, Lord, be our strength as in our weakness we dare to make commitments to you. As we decide that we will always decide to invest in the family of believers. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.